Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Today, I'd like to welcome Tina Davidson. Ms. Davidson is a composer and author of the new book, Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. In her memoir, Tina discusses how challenging life experiences have influenced her creativity as a composer. But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, locumstory.com. Maybe you're curious about locums and how it might fit into your career story. But do you know all the different reasons physicians choose locums and how it works for them? At locumstory.com, you can hear firsthand stories as diverse as physicians themselves. There's not one solution for everyone. The variety of opportunities might surprise you. Locum Story is an unbiased educational resource. It has tools that let you explore trends in your specialty and compare different locums agencies. There is even a simple quiz to see if locums is right for you. Do your own research at locumstory.com. It's easy. Okay, and now to my guest, Tina Davidson. Welcome, Tina. Well, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Um, before we get into your book, let's start with your love of music, because not everyone oh. becomes a classical pianist, right, and a composer. I think that's a really tiny, I'm going to call them elite <laughs> subset of uh, the population that has uh, the talent. And then there's the drive. So how did you put those two things together? Well, I always played the piano as far as I can remember. My mother started me at five. She was my first teacher. She a, was a professor, but a, an amateur violinist who loved music. And then by the time I was about seven or eight, um, I was practicing an hour a day. And at first she gave me five cents an hour to encourage me. And I thought, well, that was not bad. And then I renegotiated to 10 cents an hour. Well, you don't and... get a whole lot more as a professional classical pianist. <laughs> so it's good that you were satisfied yeah. at uh, that level. And so when, uh, before I went to college, I lived in Germany for a year and I studied at a conservatory and then I went to Bennington College and there they wanted all their, they wanted all their musicians to do composition and an instrument. So I was thrown into a composition class and I wasn't terribly happy about it. Uh, I have to say at that point, I had never... Um, I had never played any music by women. And it's kind of interesting that the default, when you don't have a good role model or any role models, you don't even think about what you could do further than your role models. So I had never played anything by a woman composer, never considered it. And after I was in it for about three months, it's just what I wanted to do. And I think what was so important to me was to be able to articulate my story in a medium where you couldn't really tell that it was my story. So I could 
put all my thoughts and feelings into music, but you couldn't ask me real questions because I'd just say, oh, it's music. And I think for a long time, that was very important to me. Well, in fact, I think that's what well, you allude to the fact that most of the famous composers, you know, Mozart, Bach, right? They were men, right? Those are the ones yes. that we learn. But also I'm thinking of uh, one music that one sort of composer that I'm familiar with, Anton Dvorak, wrote the New World mm -hmm. Symphony about coming to the United States right. and all the exuberance is that's what they did, right? You know, yes. they they put their emotional state or told a story, right? I mean, that that's what they were doing. And I think that has become more and more important to me to really be able to articulate where I am in my life. At that point, you know, for the first 10 years of my composing, I've been composing for 45 years. So the first 10 years, I don't think I really knew who I was. And that people would listen to my music, say, oh, I love your music, but it doesn't remind me of you at all. Mm. And I really took that into consideration. Um, and then later I started to understand myself better and be able to realize that that's what makes my music unique is to be me and to be female and a mother. And as we'll talk about later, I, I was ill for uh, about nine years. So all of those things then became channeled into my music. Well, that's very interesting because, you know, when you see somebody's bio, it's like, oh, they played their piano and they became a composer. And you say, oh, well, I want to be famous. That's why I'm being, a comp I want to be like, you know, Mozart. But that wasn't it at all. You wanted to self-discover. I, you know, the impetus was always actually to be seen ah. because of the way I grew up as a foster child and as an adopted child. I didn't feel like I was being seen. But then I realized to be seen was also to be who I was. And to so express your voice. My, yes, this was your voice. voice. Yes, this yeah. was my voice. Did it help? Help what? <laughs> being <laughs> being well, seen? When you were, uh, you said, hey, I'm seen now. No, no. I think the work to understand myself, why I had that desire. And why this was such an important thing for me to do. And in a funny way, why I was saving my life as I was writing music, which was to express myself and to explore my history and my understanding of myself, that worked. Okay. All right. Well, that's, I think, I don't know. You know, I was going to say that's unique, but maybe it's not. You know, I think a lot of writers, certainly, I'm more familiar with authors you know, write as a process of self-discovery, uh, for sure. Right. And uh, makes sense that a composer uh, might do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So do you think you had a talent? You mentioned your mother was a musician also. Do you think there's a music gene? You know, first of all, as a teacher, and I've taught in many uh, public schools, bringing composing to kids who have no musical background. And I really believe that creativity is one of our rights as human beings and that we all have creativity. It's how we recognize it and how we use it. Now, some of us may have more creativity in a certain area than others. Um, 
so I think you always have to have talent and creativity, but you always have to have hard work. In fact, I tell my some of my students now, I have really very talented students. And I always say to them, you know, talent requires work. It just, it has to have work. You can't have it without. So um, I don't know about any genetics. Although I have to say that my foster mother was a musician. My She played the harmonica. My mother was a, an amateur violinist. And my father was, a, a he was a scientist, a researcher, but he was a, also a jazz pianist. So maybe I was answering a call from- Yeah, it sounds, you were surrounded. So we have both yeah. the genetic yeah. influence and environment influence. Well, I, I just think it's an interesting- uh, Yeah question all right so you mentioned that you were ill and that the music did it how did that influence your music you had congestive heart failure you had a problem with your heart valve for a long long time yes. eventually you suffered with it but it got fixed i guess yes. you know through yes. surgery which uh, wasn't fun but uh, worth the trouble so so how did that whole thing influence your your creativity well, when I got sick, um, and I probably had got it from a dentist, um, and um, they, my cardiologist said, oh, we'll see you in, and you'll have open heart surgery in six months. And I thought, yeah, no. <laughs> so what I, at that point, I was a pianist, I was a composer, and I had all these part-time jobs. I was directing a new music ensemble, and I decided that I was going to pare back I was going to stop performing. I could I could either be a pianist or a composer. I decided to be a composer. And I just pared my life back to accommodate my illness. So I was on the couch at seven o'clock every evening. You know, I really couldn't go out and party. I couldn't drink. I couldn't eat, you know, delicious foods. I had to very pare everything back so that I could write music four hours a day, four or five hours a day. And um, in an interesting way, I think my illness made me a composer at that point. Everything else was in service to the work that I wanted to do. Well, you became an artist in an ivory tower. You were I uh, had focused. To be I had to be very careful. And, and, and then I sort of took that attitude. You know, I would journal every morning, I would read a book, I'd read every morning, but it was all in service to music, to what I was composing. So I've always believed that you are what you eat. <laughs> and um, now I can't say that my music was uh, lacking of energy. Actually, I could live through my music as a very energetic person. I couldn't do what I was doing physically, but I was young. I was, you know, 29. Um, no, yes, yes, I was 29 when I got sick. And um, it, it certainly was um, a surprise to feel like I had an old body, uh, you know, and it took a year to really accommodate to to think about and figure out how I was going to do this. And then I was, I was sick for nine years and then it eventually got worse and worse and worse. And I guess 
for me, part of the journey was when I got, when I had the open heart surgery and I was able to get surgery that just repaired the valve instead of replaced it. So I didn't have a trade. I had, you know, I was really cured, which was a total surprise to me. But I realized also as a human being and as an artist, I was very attached to this idea of me being, you know, illness had become such a great teacher for me and I didn't want to let go of it. And that was a hard transition to claim being well. Well, that's pretty and, interesting. I'll just yeah. take a step back. You mentioned the dentist. Sounds to me like you had a dental procedure, the bacteria got into your heart valve, you got endocarditis, the valve got damaged, and then you were stuck with it until it got so bad that you said, well, I have no choice. I have right. to have surgery, which, you know, this was quite a ways back. Open heart surgery is a lot more routine these days. Uh, in fact, they'll fix valves sometimes even, you know, other ways. Um but uh, you finally sort of caved. And then, so then, you know, I've seen this actually, uh, I'm a neurologist and I take care of uh, people with epilepsy and we have a surgery for epilepsy and uh, it often doesn't work, but every now and then we actually cure someone. And these are typically people who have had seizures, epilepsy for many, many years, decades. They might be 30 years old or 40 and they've had it since childhood. It's their life, right? part of their identity and then they're cured and it's like they don't have epilepsy anymore and it's like whoa it it can be a real shock to them it affects all of their relationships because mm -hmm. everyone has been who's with them typically has been accommodating them because of their epilepsy and they because of their epilepsy may have been accommodating their friends because well that's kind of the best they can do because you know the other people they really want to be friends with aren't going to hang out with them so being cured can it's a great thing but it can be very disruptive to the status quo so what happened to your music all of a sudden you're cured did it become exuberant or uh, sad uh, well or... it was it was always kind of exuberant um you know, it, it was interesting. It took me about a year to accommodate and understand my illness and live with it, you know, to be that new person. And it took about a year to live with this new person where the illness was not making decisions for me. So I would be things like I would be sitting. I, I did have a child uh, in between while I was ill. So I was well enough at some point to have a child. But I was sitting there at the dining room table and it was cold. And I thought, well, I could get up and close the door, but then I probably wouldn't have enough energy to read to my daughter or, you know. So there were all these calculations that I was making all the time. Should I walk to the post office or should I wait until my you know, husband came home the next day to mail it? Um, and I didn't have to do that. And it was a game changer that um, uh, you know, I was sad about all those years where I had sort of lived in this sequestered place, but I no longer needed to identify as an ill person, and I had to give up that persona, and uh, that took a while. Um, and I did, I did write a piece. Um, 
that was really in gratitude to the return of energy. It's called uh, Bleach Thread, Sister Thread, uh, String Quartet piece. And um, I was interested how long I could keep up the energy of an energetic uh section of the music how long could I keep it up you know how long could I pull it and pull it so yeah I did a lot of thinking about this new person that I was all right so here's a question you've been expressing yourself I think with a lot of uh, articulation through your music uh, why did you decide to write a book yes so and and isn't an interesting, isn't it, that we that it's called "Let Your Heart Be Broken," um, which actually comes from a a sense that I have that when you allow the sadness and the grief of your life, because we all have broken hearts to some degree, maybe it's love, or maybe it's life, or maybe it's aspirations that we didn't fulfill, et cetera, et cetera. But when we allow that to actually happen and as opposed to risk, you know, resisting it. I always believe that in your heart as it breaks open, there is this rich earth inside of it to create a new life. Um, so getting back to your question, uh, about 10 years ago, I, I've, I've always journaled, I've always written about music, about my process and, and my life. And I wanted to talk to others about my love of composing and my artistic process in a different media. You know, I can do it as a composer, but could I also do it in, in writing? And also my birth story and some of the things that happened to me, I wanted to speak about. So the book is almost written like I've written my opera in that there are two stories. There are little stories of my life and they're more like short stories. So when I was young and when I was growing up and next to it, the next chapter is a year of journal entries <clears throat> about my work. And also, oddly enough, about reflecting on my childhood. Every once in a while, you would get that. And you get that those two stories going through to the end. And um, the stories get closer and closer together, my journals and my the stories of my life. Um, who should read really... this book? Who should oh, read yes. it? Who? Oh, who? Who? who should read it? I think definitely anyone who's interested in the artist's journey, the artistic process, anybody interested in spiritual growth and uh, a sense of being able to be larger than, connect to a larger through your own experiences and your work, a larger sense. Um, anyone who is interested in, in kind of memoirs about people's odd lives, anyone who's a trauma survivor, um, I think it also speaks a lot to being a single parent, being a woman artist. Um, so I think it checks a lot of boxes. Okay. Okay. That, that's good. You know, I think the artist journey is just so different than most people's lives that are focused on, you know, employment and some satisfaction through work and making ends meet and, you know, fulfilling their passions. 
But art is usually not a way to riches, except for a very, very select uh, few. And often that's quite accidental. And so art is, uh, have to be very committed. And I think uh, art is something that, uh, that chooses, I would say it chooses the artist rather than the other way around, right? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you say? I mean. Uh, I think so. But I want to also say that artists are really good at speaking their truth. And what I find in my music and in my the reaction to my books is when I really say this is where I am, the reader or the listener, it's not that they are getting me, it's they're kind of getting themselves. They're kind of, it's a way for them to be understanding themselves more. So that is a, almost a collaborative process of communication. I will speak my truth and it brings up something else for you that is about you and your understanding of the world. One of the topics we talk about on this uh, program is work-life balance, which uh, mm -hmm. at least for me tends to be elusive. Uh, do you have any uh, advice for a single parent? Wow. That's a hard thing. You know, it's, uh, just struggling with the schedule and, and, you know, just taking care of the house yourself, just everything. Um, and sometimes you feel like you're just rushing from one disaster to another, you know, you're just trying to rush before the book falls off the table, you know, um, a supportive network. Okay. You know, you know, supportive network, you know, and if people, uh, if your friends are not really able to be with you and support you or hear what you're saying, find better friends. <laughs> um, I like, well, yeah. we're just about out of time. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, I'm just delighted to be on the show and I'm delighted that we're talking about uh, healing and moving on and one's perception of self. Um, I hope that your listeners will read my book. It's Let Your Heart Be Broken, uh, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. I know that uh, people who've written me that I don't know say that it's kind of reads a little bit like a thriller and that they stay up to like four o'clock at night reading the book. And I'm writing back, wait a minute, your sleep is important. So I'm very pleased to be on your show. And thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure, and I, I'm sure the audience appreci appreciates your story and can get more in-depth in the book. I'll put a link to your book uh, in the show notes, and I'll also put a little book icon in the library section on my website, andrewwilner.com. And of course, you can just go directly to Amazon and uh, find the book and uh, read it and leave a great review, right? Oh, yes, yes, always. Well. Tina Davidson, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on The Art of Medicine. Thank you. Thank you. Before we close, I'd like to give another thanks to our sponsor, locumstory.com, a resource where providers can get real, unbiased answers about locum tenants. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner. Thanks for watching. This program is hosted, edited, and produced 
by Andrew Wilner, MD, FACP, FAAN. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on the art of medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The art of medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe www.andrewwilner.com.